Welcome to the Enrollment Insights Podcast. I'm Will Patch, Enrollment Marketing Leader at Niche. In this podcast, my goal is to be less focused on the promise of best practices, instead look for the processes and the questions that spark internal reflection and lead to novel solutions tailored to your institution. My guest today is Dr. Ahmed Abdelmajid. Dr. Abdelmajid is the owner of Mosaic Consulting and has a wonderful podcast called The Eye and Immigrant. will be linked to the show notes. Really recommend you give it that a listen. In his prior role, he served as the Assistant Dean of Student Alumni and Community Engagement and Associate Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Manchester University's College of Pharmacy, Natural, and Health Sciences. Welcome, and thanks for making time to chat. Thank you for having me. Appreciate the opportunity to uh, to speak with you and, and your listeners. Yeah. Well, I'm going to start off here with two questions I ask everybody. First up here, what's something that you tried that didn't work, and what did you learn? <laughs> hey, that could take up the whole episode. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if I can uh, necessarily single one thing out. I, I I look at life in general as just a series of trials and errors. And, um, you know, once I get over the emotional response that's that's natural to any uh, failure, I try and look back and, and learn from where I went wrong, what was my contribution to the ultimate uh, negative result. And try and put it in perspective with everything else that's going on and, and learn from it. I think one of the things that I learned from early on in, in uh, my professional career in the academic setting uh, was that I needed to become a process and procedure guy because a lot of the things, although they take the, the subjective or the personal touch, a lot of things can be turned into somewhat of a step-by-step approach. And having failed to do that for uh, a few things when early on I was, uh, you know, setting up experiential education or clinical rotations for students, I realized that it would be a lot easier if I have a step-by-step approach for it so I can take a more efficient approach to discussions with sites about having students and hosting students and providing the clinical rotation outcomes that we we need. So um, not having to reinvent the wheel every single time I have a conversation with a clinical site. I looked at what common themes are there, what is there that I can put again in a step-by-step approach that is universal across the, the, the sites. And then from there, uh, add that little bit of personal and individualized or customized piece to the conversation. And you've had a number of different roles, whether that's academic, leadership, healthcare, you've lived a lot of lives. Are there, were, were there pieces that worked really well in one setting that you tried to translate over and it just fell flat? Transitioning from where uh, I worked in the hospital system and before that in the retail setting of pharmacy to academia, there are two different worlds. Even though I'm uh, involved in, uh, I was involved in the academic setting of pharmacy, uh, I couldn't take some of the, for example, the, the fast-paced approach of retail pharmacy where, you know, it's go, go, go. The decision you make is the decision that gives you more or less an immediate result to try and get that to uh, in, in the academic setting where we all know that, you know, it, it takes a while for things to turn around or for things to get uh, across or approved, whether it's a policy or, or a change to a syllabus or what have you. And so that... Um, it humbled me in a way. It took a lot of uh, a lot of learning on my part to 
re-understand or re-realize the, the setting that I'm in. Although the goal is ultimately the same, you know, graduating students that will ultimately care for the patients that I was caring for prior to my academic uh, life, uh, that approach needed to be different and I needed to learn how to adjust myself and my expectations to that. Yeah, a quick result in academia can be, what, 12 months? <laughs> <laughs> Just about, I think. Yeah, yeah. What are some of the practices you use to brainstorm and then bring new ideas into the work you're doing? Yeah, so uh, I, I tend to, with a new idea or, or uh, something that I want to try for the first time, I tend to live in my head for a little bit, um, think through it uh, from all angles as much as possible. I have this maybe a little bit of overwhelming fear of failure <laughs> that I try to think through everything and every possible iteration and scenario uh, in my head. And then when I have a what I would consider a final draft or something that's presentable, I take that then to whoever the, the other party is, whether it's my uh, direct supervisor or my group that I'm working with to, you know, to get feedback on what I was thinking or what I'm thinking. And if it's even if it's a personal or, or something not necessarily relative to work, I do that process of brainstorming through it. I'm thinking about it all the time uh, until I get it to a presentable uh, stage and then share it with others who then can share their feedback and experience with what I'm thinking. I really just want to underscore this. Because it's so important to surround yourself with people that you feel comfortable bouncing ideas off of, talking to, and getting good, honest feedback. That's such a critical thing to have people who will be there to support you. Well, jumping in here, one thing that you've done a lot of work in, talking about equity and access and inclusion, working with several groups, mm -hmm. how can admissions and marketing staff, whether that's a university, whether that's a community college at a, a high school, how can they take a critical eye to their processes and their, their assets, their visuals, their writing to work through an equity lens? That's a, that's a great question. And I, I tried to think of that from, let's say, a, a set of transferable, hopefully transferable skills from what I tried to teach my students when they're uh, acting in the best interest of uh, their patients. When we talk about people from various walks of life or various uh, economic statuses or backgrounds or immigration, what have you, to approach the patient with a sense of humility. So if we, if we think about it from uh, cultural competence is the word that, that a lot of um, uh, books use. Uh, I don't necessarily like the word cultural competence because competent, competence in that sense to me entails that you know everything about that culture. Uh, I like more of cultural awareness, knowing or realizing that someone's approach to certain uh, things is different than mine. But in best practice for me in healthcare, at least, is cultural humility, uh, not to impose my own cultural standards or norms on the patient that I'm caring for. And not to say that I, uh, I give up my beliefs or that I, you know, I just go with the women will of, of the person I'm caring for, but to not impose my beliefs on them or not to come at them from this is how you should look at this. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and, you know, that I think would be a, a set of transferable skills for 
marketing or admissions of understanding that, you know, someone who might not have had any family members go through the whole admission process of a university or someone whose uh, first language is not English, you know, to expect every student coming through the door to perform in the same way or to be able to hit the ground running is a bit unrealistic. And so having a little bit of humility in uh, that expectation, obviously without compromising the, the standard. I know I, my background, my education is in, in medication. So I'm coming from a point of knowledge about the medical field uh, and what best works for from a disease perspective. So I'm not saying I'm going to compromise my status there and my knowledge there. But if I tell someone to to quit smoking and I'm not empathizing with their situation or understanding, I can say it and explain it scientifically and give them the best product. But if they're not willing to engage in it, or if I'm not able to get them to engage in it, they're not going to take that step. I like that, getting them to engage, getting them to take that next step. How can you get to that initial point when you might only have a few emails back and forth or a phone call when you're not face-to-face? How do you get to that point where you can build that trust and understanding to take that step? It is a tough question because if you're losing the face-to-face, I think the best approach is still the, the face-to-face. And I mean, because body language and the way that you welcome someone and the way that a person feels in the space that you're inviting them to uh, is, is very important. Uh, but I, I think also that the way in which we communicate uh, I understand standardizing certain emails, uh, but you can still customize them a little bit. So it's not cookie cutter, you know, mm-hmm. uh, one of the things, for example, when, you know, I, I do a lot of training on Islam and caring for the Muslim patient and, and talking again from the cultural awareness uh, and humility standpoint, I, I tell people not to assume that because someone's name is Ahmed Abdelmajid, that he's Muslim or he's someone who's adhering to Islamic practices. But to ask, you know, what can I best do to, you know, accommodate or what can I do to best accommodate religious beliefs that you may have? Tell me about your religious beliefs. Uh, Now, obviously, it's a different setting in admissions, but, you know, what can we do or what would make the experience better for you? Put it in their field and and have them engage with you that way or in asking that open-ended question that, shows them that you're interested in them as a person beyond just a a GPA and a potential ability to pay tuition and and what have you. You do need that face-to-face. There's so much body language, especially where, you know, if someone's a first-generation American or or something where there's a bit of a language barrier that's being overcome as well. Mm -hmm. You know, if you can't read that body language, there can be a lot lost there. And I just worry about that now with, at best, you can see someone's face on a video call. Yeah, yeah, it's a, we're living in, in different times, but we're also dealing with a generation, for the most part, that to them is normal, that communication, um, whether it's texting or email or, or FaceTime or what have you, to us, we kind of had to learn it. But I think to the generation just entering um, college, they grew up with that. So it's learning how that piece of communication, you know, I think learning about how to best utilize that piece of communication uh, is important. How can they take a look at their language, at their writing, to make sure that they're bringing people in to engage? All right. I'm, I'm thinking of it from 
teaching in within the healthcare setting. And in one elective that I used to teach about vulnerable and underserved patient populations, with my class, we would go and delve deeper into conscious and subconscious biases, you know, work through uh, my own reaction to a certain situation and trying to understand it. So, for example, you know, we talk about, okay, so you're working at your community pharmacy with a drive-up window and you see someone who drives up in this brand new car and hands you a their Medicare or Medicaid insurance card. And I'm like, okay, what's the first thought crossing your mind in that situation? And, you know, and we freeze frame because for a lot of them, they're, they're jaded by whatever that, oh, they're gaming the system or, oh, they're cheating or this or that. And, you know, like, okay, well, let's freeze frame here and let's think about that initial reaction that you had to this and let's put alternatives that may explain the situation differently. Maybe they're borrowing their friend's car. Uh, maybe they, you know, that's the only thing that they have to their possession after losing their job. So again, the assumptions that we put on people in certain situations that may impede the care that we're trying to provide them. So I think in that sense, it's very individual or working with the team of admissions to look at what potential conscious and, and subconscious biases they may have towards certain groups or towards certain material that they see on applications and how they react to it. And can we work on that and, and not necessarily go in the negative direction because of a particular thing that we see? I think it could be negative and positive, but there, there's always those biases. And exactly. It takes constant practice. I mean, exactly. I mean, I, uh, the flip side of that, I tell them, you know, I walk into your pharmacy with my tie and, and you know, sports jacket on and uh, you talk to me as as if I understand what you're saying, but whatever, I'm a financial analyst. I have no interest or no knowledge in, you know, in <laughs> medical terminology and everything goes over my head. So, yeah, there's positive projection and negative projection. You're right. One other thing I want to touch on here, you talk about approaching things with a sense of humility. And I, I wonder if people might take the word humility and maybe cringe a little, thinking that they are associating that with humiliation how do you differentiate <laughs> that how do you how do you uh, how do you get people to to embrace that word humility yeah, I, I think that there might be and, and and i think some people uh think of humility as a weak stance on an issue again i think humility does not mean compromise it doesn't mean compromising your position or compromising the standards that you're trying to do the way that I like to explain humility is that you're not the measuring stick. And again, I do that in the situation in healthcare interactions where uh, with the patient, I'm not the measuring stick in this is how you should think about this or this is how you should approach this. Again, not compromising the medical training that I have. So I know that this medication is best for this disease state. But, you know, there might be economic factors that the second best drug is the best choice for the disease state uh, or the, you know, the way in which I explain it to you or the way in which your thought about it. You, you might have a spiritual angle to uh, what you're going through from a disease perspective. And for me to scoff at that or to uh, say that's just nonsense, here's the science behind it 
is going to negatively impact that relationship that you'll have with the patient. So humility, again, to me is not considering yourself the measuring stick for how people should react or should do uh, uh, or should approach or think about a particular situation. I want to get this printed up and put in my office because this is fantastic. This is a revelation. We're not the measuring stick. Our experiences, our past, our college search is not the same as the students. And we cannot say that this is the be all end all. What's best for me is not the best for you. I think that's something that is so hard to remember, but so important that I hope that you go back and listen to that a couple times. Well, we've we've been leading right into this. So what are some starting points that an individual or an office can work together to evaluate their biases, whether that's an actual bias or, or just not showing enough empathy for students and their families during recruitment? I think there's a lot of humility that needs to be involved in that process. But also we have to, I guess, again, humility from the perspective of the supervisor trying to work with his or her team on this, uh, understanding that people would, for the most part, react defensively or would not want to engage uh, in something that they may consider. I'm not biased. I don't look at this with a biased lens. Why are you putting me through a a conscious and subconscious bias training? You know what I'm saying? They're going to get defensive. They're not going to get engaged. So I think we need to uh, be cognizant of the team uh, and be deliberate in explaining why and how uh, we're going to do this. So it's not to label someone. It's not to say that, you know, you're biased in this way or in that way, but it is a self-growth tool. Uh, If I understand that when I see an application of someone named Will, I react negatively because of the name Will. If I'm conscious of that and I'm aware of that, then I can probably stop myself from, you know, you know, every will is different. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's one of those where I think it is so easy to shut down. And say no, 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 I'm I'm not. I, I, you know, I I've taken to almost saying I try not to be, but I'm confident I have. But if I'm not open to the fact that I may have been, I'm not going to learn. I'm not going to be better tomorrow. Exactly, and you know, we all have our own biases. Mm-hmm. It's it's universal uh, now. Again, conscious versus subconscious and how we approach it and how we, we grow from, from it is, um, is a different conversation. I know, I know one thing that you've worked with and, and talked about is about the immigrant experience. Uh, there's lots of different stages here. You know, a, a student whose family immigrated from Myanmar, for example, is going to be different than the one who came from England in terms of their background, what their community structure is like, what their family structure is like. What are some things that people can do to better understand and serve refugees even as a possibly traumatized subset of immigrant students? There's a lot, there's a lot there, I know. But <laughs> You need to be at first aware of what resources you have at your institution or what resources you need to have at your institution. I mean, when you're talking about a traumatized subset of, of the population, you need uh, counseling that can help uh, with that. But in general, with immigrant students. And yes, immigrants are different. And in, in you mentioned early on the podcast that uh, the I an immigrant and what I've learned from the conversations that I've had from different immigrants and I myself being an immigrant 
is that every immigrant story is different, but there are universalities. And the universal things are there's always that tug or, or homesickness. Uh, I've been in the United States and Canada for 25 years, uh, longer than the place that I was born and raised in. But every now and again, I get that nostalgic feeling of I want to be back where I grew up. Uh, there's a lot that goes on on the mind of the immigrant. So you take everything that you you think about on a daily basis as someone who's born and raised in the U.S. and all of that and the stress of school. But on top of it, there are additional things, whether it's the stress or fear of disappointing a family back home or the stress of, uh, you know, this, my family's scraping to put the money together for my tuition. I have to mm -hmm. succeed or adjusting to, you know, to a completely different culture. And, you know, that cultural transition takes a while from the culture shock to seeing things that you're not used to uh, seeing positive and negative. I mean, we're, I'm not framing it in any negative sense, but mm -hmm. it's a transition. And so being aware of that, I think the, the people that helped me the most uh, in, in academic settings at a, as a student were people that were willing to listen to me, that didn't ridicule the fact that for some days I couldn't sleep at night because I was worried about not that I would get a low grade on an exam, but what that low grade would mean, mm. you know, and I'm... Um, sent by my family to the U.S. to study, what kind of disappointment will people back home have if I got a C on that exam and, you know, I'm the straight-A student coming out of high school? And, you know, you can just say, well, you know, it's adjusting to a new academic setting and all this and all that, and you can try and justify it and rationalize it as much as you want, but it, it is a palliative stressor, you know, that that student has. So I think having people who are willing to listen, Uh, and having the appropriate and proper training to know when it's beyond that, that you need to triage them to a counselor or someone who can help delve a little deeper into certain issues is very important. There was a graphic that you made a while back, talked about the differences between inclusion and, and equity. Is that something you can talk a little bit about how you differentiate those and what the different stages are? You know, I, I created it because there's a lot of conversations on diversity, inclusion, and belonging. And I believe actually through the um, conversation with you and a few others on, on LinkedIn, I added this, the, the fourth step, which is the ultimate, which is equity. I wanted to put something um, in, in a visual sense for people to kind of see what it is that we mean when we're talking about diversity versus inclusion, versus belonging, versus equity. When we think about diversity, and again, painting with a broad brushstroke, but this is what I'm seeing from different institutions and organizations that I've talked to or worked with, where the concept of diversity is just, I'll have uh, various members from different you know, ethnic or socioeconomic groups. Okay? So when you look at the graph that I created, there's a circle, Uh, bigger figures, all of the same color are within that circle. And then there are smaller figures in smaller circles outside of that. That's diversity. Sure, I have, you know, I have the Arab, I have the Muslim, I have the, uh, you know, the Jewish person, I have the, you know, the one from a lower socioeconomic status, I have the African-American, but they're not integrated within 
the overall culture of the institution or the organization. So that's when we move on to inclusion. And inclusion is, okay, well, I'll have them closer, but they're still within their circles and they, we're still looking at different circles. We're not all within the same perimeter. And belonging is, you know, what a lot of companies and, and organizations are talking about right now, where you have that representation across the board. But really within belonging still, we see that the, the shapes of the figures are different. Uh, the best example of that that I can give is when we look at, at a female CEO versus a male CEO or woman versus man, where the, the, what we see are that uh, women CEOs are getting paid less than men CEOs. So although you have both who are CEOs, one is getting still paid less than the other. So equity, the ultimate goal that we have is that everybody on the same level and it's across representation of the diversity that is within the institution or the community. And I'll link to that in the show notes. That's that's one I've used for reference several times since. It's that missing piece. I've paid more attention this year than ever before, I think, to the language that schools use. You see a lot of welcoming and belonging, mm-hmm. but it's rare to find someone talking about creating equity or creating equality. Yeah, and it's it's not something that we're going to accomplish overnight because yeah. I think the biggest the biggest challenge or the biggest uh, thought challenge is that we think of our organization sometimes as an island in and of itself or on its own. Uh, but we have to realize that what happens outside of it impacts what happens inside. And so we can't just leave work at work and home at home. It's a continuum between the two. And that continuum also presents us challenges and sets of opportunities for improving our, our diversity, inclusion, belonging that will ultimately lead us to equity. Well, thank you. I really appreciate your time here today. I hope that people listen to this and, and have some hard conversations and take a look at their, their processes and what they're doing as an office. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate the opportunity. And if people want to follow up with some extra questions, or they just wanted to connect, is there a way they could do that? I have a personal blog. I, I'm, I'm working on my professional blog for Mosaic Consulting to hopefully <laughs> have it in a presentable <laughs> format. But there's a personal blog in which uh, some of these pieces of conversations are there. So they can contact me through that at uh, nomad78.weebly.com or uh, through the podcast uh, and the podcast website, www.vi, the letter I, vi and immigrant.com. Great. Thank you and, and stay safe. You too, Will. Thanks a lot.